Welcome to the Fierce Mothers podcast, where we help black and brown women find guidance and inspiration every week. We are so excited to have you listen in. I'm your host, Gochi Onyewu. Today on the podcast, I am so honored to be talking to Malobi Achike. Malobi is an attorney and ardent diversity, equity, and inclusion ambassador. She is passionate about working with organizations to usher in changes that will sustainably impact the DEI efforts within. This passion led Malobi to launch her own tech startup, DEI Directive. DEI Directive helps organizations take the guesswork out of the DEI management process by giving them real-time and comprehensive access to DEI data so they can effectively manage and drive real results at the organization. Prior to her role as the founder and CEO of DEI Directive, Malobi spent over 15 years working in corporate legal tech and private practice spaces. She also has a great deal of business experience in the African and Asian markets. She is a problem solver the through and through and enjoys connecting people to solutions and resources. Today's episode, we chat about all things DEI and we unpack the myth Behind the Angry Black Woman. I'm so excited for you to listen to this chat. Hi, Malobi. It's so nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing great, Ugochi. So good to see you again under better circumstances. I know. (laughs) I know. So glad you're feeling better. So glad you're feeling better. So just to kick it off, we've already done the introduction to the audience. And I know they're super excited to dive right in. So just to kick it off, just tell us a little bit about Malobi. Where did you grow up? What was life like growing up? Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, sounds good. So who is Malobi, huh? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, like, so I am the first of, well, five children, now four, because we did lose my younger sister when I was about nine, 10, but I was born in Nigeria born in Nigeria, in Enugu specifically. And my family and I lived there until I was about 12, 13 years old. And then at that point, we migrated to Malaysia, to Kuala Lumpur. Well, more specifically, Patalanjaya, which was like a suburb of the capital city, Kuala Lumpur. So... Yeah, yeah. So so I was in Kuala Lumpur, me specifically for almost 10 years, about seven, eight years, and migrated to the United States, Minnesota, specifically in my early 20s. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We could have a whole discussion around that. So what brought you to the US? Did you come with your family or did you come by yourself? So I was the first of, so my whole family is now here, but I was actually the first of my immediate family to, mm-hmm. to migrate. Obviously, I have a lot of family in, in the States, uncles, aunts, cousins, like all sorts of family all over the place. But uh, so I was the first of my family to migrate. And I chose Minnesota specifically because my mom's younger brother lived in Minnesota with his wife and, and, and siblings. Because, yeah, a lot of people were curious. So you are from Nigeria, grew up in Malaysia and you chose Minnesota? Like, why would you do that? (laughs) 
that. So that was why I, I had friends in California that and they could not understand. It was just like that does California makes much better sense for you. But that was why just to be close to immediate family. And of course, when I moved, I lived with my uncle for a little bit while I got my bearings and, you know, went back to school and all of that. So awesome. That's so ah. interesting. So interesting. You can talk to us a little bit if we have time at the end. I'd love to hear about your experience in Malaysia, but yeah. I'd love you to tell us what you do today and describe your journey to this point. How did you get to this point? Talk to us. Yeah. Yeah. So today I'm a very proud owner of a tech startup called DEI Directive. Um, I'm actually one of the co-founders and I'm the CEO. And so we're a tech startup. And essentially what we do, we are an employee engagement and diversity, equity, and inclusion technology company. And really what that means is we are helping organizations really apply what we call the MAD methods, right? So really tapping into metrics, accountability, and data in their DEI efforts internally. And so ultimately what that means is we're really just giving them an access to an end-to-end platform that helps them to be more proactive and intentional in managing their organization's DEI health. So that includes providing them access to data, helping them understand what data they have access to internally, what the gaps are, collect data, set goals and monitor goals, be able to also look externally and you know get some nuanced information by looking at how do we fare compared to our industry, region, national numbers. We also help with like learning. We have robust library of learning you know topics that they can essentially utilize to spark dialogue and awareness internally. And of course that you know dirty word compliance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For a lot of people. Yeah. You you have to be compliant at the very like, you know, basic level. So we also help organizations do that as well. So that's kind of what we do. (laughs) I have so many questions around that. First of all, let me start with define compliance. So compliance, compliant to what? Because I actually basically didn't know that companies had to be compliant, right? Yeah. So, So, I mean, obviously there are all sorts of, you know, compliance and regulations out there, but what I'm talking more specifically at this time is the diversity. So basically equal employment opportunity compliance Mm -hmm. for organizations. So organizations that fall within a certain, you know, category have to report their numbers to the government annually. And so that's one, you know, we've talked to a lot, a lot of organizations across different industries. And that's one of the core areas that organizations actually tend to struggle with. Yeah, the process right now is typically quite manual. There's a lot of back and forth with the person that's project managing that effort or it's in charge of actually submitting that reporting and those data and information to the government. That person typically has to correspond with the heads of all the different departments. And it's like, hey, send me your information. Oh, wait, but did you send me this? When did you? So there's a lot of back and forth and then multiply that type of correspondence back and forth, you know, 10 times, 20 times, however big the organization is with all the different departments. So that's one way that organizations are kind of getting through that this today. And then in some cases, you know, they might have maybe a software that helps them pull that information together. But typically what it's doing is just pulling numbers. And so now you have this elaborate giant Excel spreadsheet that you still have to kind of comb through and digest and consolidate and subgroup. And so there really isn't a lot of good options out there as far as how to manage it. So that's one of the things our software does is really 
sort of streamline, simplify and help them with that process. That is amazing. That is amazing. You know, you raised a couple of questions, but I do want to start off so I don't lose track of that. I want to ask you (laughs) if you always had a passion for DEI. So what led you to start the company? Did you grow up knowing as a child, I'm going to be a DEI (laughs) person. I'm going to found a company that has software for DEI. Talk to us about that. I'm really curious. Yeah, no, I I love that you asked that question because the, the short answer is really no. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, who even really knew what DEI was, especially if you look at my, my background, right? I mean, I was born in Nigeria. That's a largely homogeneous society. I mean, obviously there are some, in any society, there's always going to be differences, right? And and the nature of humans is to find those differences and try to have conflicts around those mm-hmm. differences, no matter how minor. But that was not really something that was top of mind being in Nigeria, right? And then getting to Malaysia, Malaysia is actually quite diverse. It's probably one of the most diverse Asian countries because you have sort of like three major groups, the, you know, the Chinese and then you have Indians, and then you have the, you know, Malays. So it's quite diverse. And then when I was in Malaysia, I actually went to international school. So I was thrust into this hyper diverse environment, right? I mean, I had everybody from every continent, almost every country in my school. Um, So again, I wasn't even really consciously aware of those dynamics at the time, but obviously upon reflection, after years and years of reflection, I can actually see that that was probably when my love of DEI started, right? Mm -hmm. It was really in that school. And it was because that was where I grew to really just love and appreciate differences, Mm -hmm. as well as really develop a very uh, advanced sense of curiosity about others, Mm -hmm. right? So if I hear you're from this place or you're doing something that I'm just not familiar with, I mean, my antennas go up and I'm excited and I immediately want to talk to you and learn more. It's not something that I don't have the internal mechanism to sort of like cause me to go to a place of, I'm afraid of you. Like, wait, like are you a threat to me? That That's just not how things work in, in my brain, at least, you know? And I think it really stems from that experience. But then, you know, fast forward to when I joined the workforce, I really found myself, even though I wasn't working full-time, like, I mean, my title was not DEI manager or director or chief diversity officer, but I found myself really leaning towards those types of, of initiatives, right? Like in, in law school, one of the things that I really tried to do with a few of my classmates was to found this student organization called the Issues Forum. And what we did was really try to address like issues on campus, right? So I know one of the things that we looked at was like LGBTQ issues. Mm-hmm. And then we actually would write, so we will gather a group of students, we'll host like, you know, like a lunch event, mm-hmm. uh, talk through issues. And then we would sort of do like a, a, a memorandum that we would provide to the dean. Mm-hmm. And then of course, fast forward, getting into the workplace, I just naturally tended to, you know, just go after and get involved in underrepresented group issues. So I was the the chair of the Women Community Outreach Group for many, many years, and of course was very involved with the larger women group. And then I was also the co-chair of the Black Employee Network on a global level. So those were just passions. Again, I didn't see all of this until probably three years ago was when I I connected all the dots. And I was like, ah, yeah, totally makes sense that I'm here. <laughs> to- totally makes sense. So yeah. totally makes sense. And so many nuggets I want to kind of dig into. The first one is you mentioned you went to law school, right? Yeah. You have 
a tech startup. So talk to us about that, right? Because my obviously the the question that comes to mind is, do you have a tech background? How does that work? And here you are, you know, starting a tech startup. So talk to us about that. That's one question. I want to make sure I list them so that we, because we, <laughs> there's so many nuggets. This is great. This is great. The second one is you you talked about obviously compliance. And I had another question around companies. So maybe as you answer the first, you can go into the second. Companies that have issues around compliance, because when you look at especially tech companies, for example, when you look at the underrepresented minority, say, for example, African-Americans, right? About 12% of the US population. But in a lot of tech companies, they're under 4%, right? Does that play into compliance? So do companies get fined if they have a, a certain number of, if they're well below that national average? Do you see where I'm going with that question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I totally see where you're going. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to answer the second question first. Okay. Back to your tech start, startup and my experience question. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so the you're absolutely right. One of the things, especially when I dove into the initial research about validating my idea right before I actually implemented was really diving into the research and the numbers. And as much as I was already involved in, you know, DEI work and efforts in the past, even I was very surprised when I dove into the data, what I found out. Mm. I knew it was bad. I didn't quite realize how bad and how widespread Mm. the rot really is, right? And so, yes, you know, when you're, so the compliance piece, especially when you're talking about the EEO one compliance, Mm. uh, so you basically have to report these numbers and it will look at like, you know, racial, you know, breakdown, submit that to the government. And, And what happens is, you know, when you submit that to the government, yes, you could be fine but of course the level of the level of enforcement is questionable whether something really sort of becomes of that right but i think really for an organization specifically i would say the compliance piece is definitely a driver but a bigger driver especially in recent years has really been employees right mm-hmm. so employees deciding i don't want to work at this organization because I'm looking at your entire leadership team and there's nobody that looks like me, right? I'm looking at your workforce and I'm basically making the calculations. I'm going to get there and it's just me. Mm-hmm. And nobody really sort of, I mean, I, I shouldn't say nobody, but a lot of people are increasingly just aware that that's not the standard that they want for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece too is the customers are driving it, right? I mean, customers are much more informed they have access to information and they're really speaking with their dollars, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't, this is what I believe in. I don't want to put my money at this organization that goes against all the things that I stand for. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a lot of that. And of course you have other stakeholders like investors, you know, having a say. And so I think all of that together is really what is pushing organizations to be more intentional. And of course, like when you start talking about things like globalization, so the world is getting smaller, you're talking about remote work. So now I can't just say, oh, well, we are based here and it's, you know, 95% white population. So that you can't really say that because there are just so many different avenues available to you to diversify your workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, going back to your first question. So how does an attorney end up with a tech startup? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I, I actually like to provide that 
uh, clarification proactively because it does cause a little bit of, huh, I can't quite, you know, make out. But so what happened? So yes, I went to law school. I graduated. I actually practiced for a short period of time. And then I transitioned my career to corporate. So I went into corporate. And when I went into corporate, I specifically worked at corporate technology. Mm -hmm. So I worked at a company that was the industry leader in providing legal technology to attorneys. Got it. And and I was there for about 13 years. So I was there for a very, very long time. And so as as you can imagine, I was in a variety of roles. So I was very, very involved in technology, speaking to customers, understanding. And it was interesting, you know, making that transition after having practiced, Mm -hmm. because now I was seeing the other side of it, right? So I was talking to people like my former self, And, you know, it made it really interesting being able to bridge sort of like that knowledge gap of, oh, okay, so these were my needs. Oh, and this is what we can do on the technology side to sort of meet those needs and anticipate future needs and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. and so I really do want to get into, because obviously DEI is such an interesting subject and you're the expert. So while I have you in the chair, I'm going to fire you with all these questions. The first one is, you know, I've often seen equality use the word equality And I've also seen the word equity used, right? And I'd love for you, if I have this question, I'm sure there are people in the audience that would love to know. I'd love to know the difference, right? Because it seems like it might be nuanced, that difference, or maybe not. So maybe you could talk us through that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually a pretty common question people ask because it's, it's those two terms are typically always misunderstood and misused for each other. Right. So a lot of times when people are actually talking about equity, they, they, they say equality, but really what they mean is equity. So I'm going to kind of explain what it is. Mm -hmm. So equality really is treating everybody equal. And on its face, it sounds, oh, great. Yeah, that's do that. That's what we should do. Well, yeah, but only if you're doing that in a vacuum, though. So that means we're going to disregard all the historical things that have happened Hmm. that have created inequality, right? So we can't, I mean, that's not necessarily the the call to action or, or, or the ask here. Because if you do that, then you are essentially going to maintain those disparities and in some cases, quite severe disparities that already exist given the historical context. Mm. Uh, Equity, what that means is meeting people where they are. So, um, So really not just looking at, okay, we want to treat everybody equal, but okay, we want to treat everybody equal, but where are they today though? And where are we trying to get them to get to? And what does each person need to be able to get there? Because that those needs are going to be different. So equity focuses a lot more on what's the what's the end result that you're looking for, and then working backwards from there. So then, what how, what can we give each person to get to the end result? There's actually a really easy example that I love to use. I didn't make up this example. It already exists and is used by others as well. But imagine we want, we have four people that need to get from point A to B. And those people, individuals, let's say one is a small child, so very small frame, a large man, so big frame, let's say an average size woman, And then we have somebody with a physical disability that's on a wheelchair. And so we want them to get from point A to B and we give them all the child size bicycle. Well, if you do that, 
our end result is to get them to point B. If you do that, probably only the child can make that journey. Mm-hmm. And they're not allowed to work, to right. walk to the, to the place or use any yeah. other, right? So right. only the child can do that. But equality means we give them all the same thing. Well, mm-hmm. no, we're going to treat you equal. So everybody gets the child bicycle or everybody gets the large man bicycle. It's not, it doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. So equity requires us to consider where everybody is, what's the goal we're looking for, and then giving each of them the right vehicle, bicycle to make that trip. So I that's love that. a simple way. Of that is, at. yeah, that is awesome. That is awesome. And there's so many ways we can take that. Yeah. I mean, I think for a long time, we have operated under the assumption that there is no incentive for mm-hmm. equity. And that's mm-hmm. why we have all these inequities. Mm-hmm. The problem though, is that, and I, and I think part of that is there just wasn't also a lot of studies and data around the business justification of all the different facets of DEI. So why diversity important is important, equity, et cetera. So for me, you know, the way I look at that, I really like to draw analogy or to tie those directly to employee engagement, Mm -hmm. right? So if I'm an employee and I'm in this environment and I'm observing all these inequities, right? I'm seeing that, wait a minute, I have the same experience, maybe even more experience than this next person, and they're getting paid more and I'm not, or they constantly are getting access to the big projects, the high visibility projects, and I'm not. Over a period of time, what do you think that does for me as an employee, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And what do you think So my engagement level is, I'm going to, my engagement level is going to dip, right? I'm not going to be as engaged. And at some point, the energy that I'm also bringing to the team is going to become more and more of a disruptive, not so positive Mm -hmm. energy. And all of that stuff affects not just my productivity, it impacts the productivity of the people around me. Mm -hmm. Now, within an organization, it's probably not just me. Mm -hmm. There are going to be a lot of people within different demographics. Because remember, you know, when you're talking about underrepresented, marginalized groups, it's not just like racial minorities. I mean, you're talking about women. Yes. We're talking about, you know, white men that maybe are neurodiverse or, you know, have, uh, you know, like physical disability. I mean, there are so many different, like when you start talking into intersectionality, right? And so what I just described with me as, as the center, as an example, you multiply that by how many? Mm-hmm. So if you start looking at that and really adding the dollars, ultimately that impacts the organization's bottom line and revenue. Yes. And so you might not care about my feelings and whether I show up to work happy or not happy or grumpy or whatever, but at some point you care about the company's bottom line. Yeah. So if you care about that, then if you work it backwards, then you should care about how I feel. So yeah. just to kind of you know put a bow on this, the employee disengagement right now in the US, about 85% of employees are disengaged. Wow. Okay. And obviously we've heard about great resignation right over the last few years. We heard about quiet quitting, which is also a disengagement issue. And we know right now we're sort of like in the middle of, I mean, I know there's a lot of layoffs now, but just before that, and even right now, organizations are also trying to find talent and to struggle to find talent to fill these positions. And so this is, these are really real issues that are facing, you know, companies in this country. Mm -hmm. And then you lay on top of that, even those that are in position, 72 roughly percent of people 
want to quit their jobs. And, and a lot of them don't even care if they take a pay cut to do that. Mm. So these are, these are real issues that yeah. again, yeah. you might not care about the human side, but ultimately all of these human sides are impacting your yeah. business in a big I, way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you called that out. I also love that you called out the intersectionality when you talk about diversity, it's not just race. It's yeah. not just gender, right? There's also like neurodiversity and other kinds of diverse physical, you know, diversity. Yeah. So I love that you called out that out. The second thing I just wanted to say before we move on, because to your point about impacting the bottom line, I have also heard that the more diverse a team is, the more productive, the more efficient, the more outcomes, positive outcomes, the more results that impact the bottom line as well. So rather than thinking about it, maybe in a, in a consequences with the consequences lens of not doing something, it's looking at the benefits of doing something right as well. Yes. So you and you're that. absolutely right. And I think, I think that's the part where there isn't as much awareness mm-hmm. so, so far for a very long time. Uh, you know, companies have always talked about DEI more through the consequence lens compliance. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I don't get in trouble. Right. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's not as much conversation. We're having those conversations now, but even now I think there's still room to have it in a big way of the business justification, just how critical, if I care about, you know, getting competitive edge, reaching a larger market, getting, you know, the best talent, well, then you should care about DEI because they are connected. Yeah. Yeah. I have a basic question, and I think I already know the answer to this, just in the conversation that we've had already. When you when you talk about someone being an underrepresented minority, so we're both African-American women, for example. And if you think about the, the population of African-Americans in the U.S., we make up about 12%, roughly, may have changed slightly. Yeah. If I'm at an organization and they have less than 12% of of their employees being African-American, would you would that be the only criteria by which you'd say an African-American at that company is an underrepresented minority or are they still an underrepresented minority even if they make up, say, 30% of the population just because by the U.S. definition they're underrepresented? Do you, do you, yeah. do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah no, I, yeah. I absolutely know what you're getting at there. So I, the thing about, you know, when you're looking kind of like in the DEI space, there isn't there isn't really any sort of like centralization. And what I mean by that, it's not like there's one uniform definition of underrepresented minority, right? Mm -hmm. So as you talk to different organizations, you might find that the way they are utilizing certain terms might differ. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question though, your question actually reminded me of a recent conversation that I had with a chief diversity officer of a HBCU, right? And so this person was essentially faced with an ask within the organization where the small percentage of the white students there wanted to create like a student body. And then of course, typically the response is like, well, but no, like you are the majority. Mm-hmm. Well, but in this context, they're not. Right. They, they were, and I, I mean, I was so fascinated by that and I loved it. I mean, I'm kind of like a geek for this stuff, right? <laughs> and so they were having this in- internal dialogue of whether it made sense Because, well, yeah, but you're still the majority Mm. with all of these sort of like systemic, systemic advantages, right? For you. And so then the question is, well, so, well, what happens in that type of situation? So it's very similar to what you're asking, but just like with a different demographic. And I think the answer is nuanced, right? Mm -hmm. In that case, yes, they should have a student body, right? 
because your experience in that space is going to be different. And who's to say that the student body's sole purpose is to discuss the discriminations or the the daily slight? It could be how can we leverage our privilege Mm -hmm. in this environment, right? Our sort of wider community privilege in this environment. Mm-hmm. So, so I think is, you know, like sometimes we see things sort of like in black and white, no pun intended, or, yeah. you know, it has to be this or that, but, mm-hmm. you know, quite often it, it's quite fluid and, and quite gray. Yeah. So to your question, yes, of course, even if you have an organization that has 30% African-Americans, Yes, in that space. I mean, first of all, they are still a minority in that space, but Mm -hmm. obviously much larger than what the general population percentage is. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there there's a little bit more representation, but that still does not negate the larger systemic issues Mm -hmm. that have really evolved and developed over decades. Mm -hmm. Right. And what implications those may still be having, even in that environment that on its face looks like it's quite advanced. Mm -hmm. Because my first question is, well, but where are those 30% in the organization? Are they all entry level? And some of them have been there 30 years. Are they all working in very specific type of roles? Are they the decision makers? Are they in the Mm C-suite, right? Like, are they in the tech space or are they just doing, there's a lot of, so it's it's much more nuanced. There's a lot to uncover there. Yeah. This is such a fascinating subject because the more you talk, Malobi, the more questions I have. Like you talked about, even, even as organizations, back to organizations, because that's the kind of the context, as they report their diversity metrics, because I've gone on different websites and I've seen, you know, oh, you know, we're doing much better. Last year we were at 1%, now we're at 4%, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. But of the more people that you hired, what are their roles, right? That's the second, I always ask myself internally, well, what are the, because you're just, you're just reporting this blanket. Oh, look how much better we are, but what are their roles? It's so interesting. And I love that you just made that comment because Mm -hmm. one of my personal pet peeves, honestly, Mm -hmm. is when I look at DEI reporting Mm -hmm. and they use that URM. I don't like to see that at all because- very often it doesn't really tell the story. And I know just having spoken to a ton of DEI professionals, that's also a term that is very frustrating for them because it just, it just doesn't tell, it doesn't tell the story. You know what I mean? So yeah, I have, you know, URM, but if most of them are white women, then are we really doing our work properly? Or if most of them are like Asian employees, well, that's great, right? We made advancement in this small facet, but what about the others? So I was recently actually at a conference just last week, and it was like a digital health equity conference. And one of the things, you know, one of the breakout sessions was talking about mental health, and they were talking about how, like, suicide rate was the example he used, and how over the years, been going up, and I think around 2019, it started trending downwards. Obviously, the pandemic came and messed up everything. The overall sort of takeaway from that conversation was the overall suicide rates went down. Great, great news. But guess what? Mm-hmm. When you actually looked at different demographics, you found that for Black and Latino citizens, the, the suicide rate actually went up. And not only went up a little bit, it ticked up significantly. Wow. So. Wow. It doesn't make sense to have a conversation about it going down because 
there's this assumption that it went down for everybody, yeah. but no, you're missing yeah. some significant things that are happening with certain groups that need to be addressed and preferably addressed proactively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only when you get granular that you're able to do. And that's part of what we do at DEI, by the way, is provide a DEI directive is provide organizations the ability to have the granular level mm-hmm. of data, as opposed to this big picture that really is at the end of the day, quite useless. So on a granular level now, because again, you can make the numbers look however you want them to look, yeah. right? <laughs> Candidly. Yeah. Would you say that organizations have made positive advancements in diversity or would you say this? I mean, of course, there's still a ton of work to be done, but are we trending the right way? Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a question that I struggle with because mm-hmm. in, some, in, in, in a lot of ways we're making good advances, right? Mm-hmm. But I think really the advances that we're making are not very concrete. It's more in talking about it or having yeah. more conversations about it. Yeah. I, I don't, there are obviously like some outliers and some exceptions to this rule and some organizations that are very intentional and very committed to mm-hmm. leading the charge in their various industries. So that definitely exists. But I think there's still a lot of not taking it seriously mm-hmm. or not really again understanding how this conversation truly truly ties to the business case mm-hmm. and how if you're working towards optimizing revenue for the organization this needs to go hand in hand so so that's kind of like a yes and no so we're yeah. definitely having more conversations a lot of organizations are still sort of doing the surface sort of like surface level like put a band-aid on a broken ankle kind of approach as opposed to really really committing to doing a full uh, assessment full, I don't want to say overhaul, but for lack of a better word, right? And really looking at things in a systemic way and identifying long-term solutions as opposed to, oh, let's do this un- unconscious bias training this one time. Yeah. And now yeah. suddenly everything is fixed and everybody's yeah. happy and we're good. Uh, no, yeah. It's yeah. Not yeah. The, the two words, just well, the first one is PR came to mind, right? Because it's good PR. And then when I look, think back, this is just anecdotally, I don't have any research or data to back this up, but just as my perception and, you know, being on LinkedIn and looking at the news around the time of the George Floyd incident, you know, there was a lot of organizations talking, having a lot of conversations and putting out specifically even putting out like metrics they wanted to achieve by a certain time and all this and all this. And it just seemed like, oh yeah, you know, things are finally moving forward. Well, a lot of that conversation, again, this is anecdotal, maybe, maybe it's still happening, but just in the background, it just appears to have died down a little bit. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Has it really died down? Is it that organizations are just plugging away at these metrics that they put out there that they wanted to achieve? I just love to get your thoughts because it does appear as if, oh, what happened to that? Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like around that time, everything was like in flames, like piping hot. Right. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's die down. It's Mm -hmm. it's simmering. (laughs) (laughs) It's simmering. Simmering's good. Yeah. So so again, I think there is, I think where a lot of organizations are is they recognize they need to do something. And a lot of people are really stuck at, I don't even know where, where to start. Yeah. It's the yeah. overwhelm. I don't know yeah. where to start. So I think I do believe there are a lot of organizations that are there, mm-hmm. uh, but you also have the organizations where the leadership really is the block. Like the people are, I mean, I've worked with those organizations where, you know, like the workforce, they're ready. 
-hmm. the leader is not. And Mm -hmm. that person is ultimately blocking. And I think that's one of the most tragic things because that's a scenario where things will not happen as a result of that leadership. And then of course you have those that are really committed on going to this journey and bringing everybody along with that and really committed to weathering the storm. Because, you know, of course, like with DEI and some of the conversations that you need to have, they're not going to be the most comfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. So you really have to stay with it and really believe in the positive outcome that it's going to have for your organization, for the employees, for the clients. You know, you really have to have that understanding first to be able to, you know, commit and work towards overcoming the obstacles because there will be obstacles. You're going to have people talking, oh, DEI fatigue. I mean, that's sort of like, you know, so some, one of the more recent thing that's come in. Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, we don't talk about sexual harassment fatigue. We don't talk about work (laughs) fatigue. There are other people that work at the organization that are different from you. And we all at some point need to learn to, you know, work together, mm-hmm. uh, work together in a way that benefits all of us in in, in a, a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. You know, so a few weeks ago, I recorded an episode on microaggression. As you start to kind of put wrap this up, I recorded an episode on microaggression. I also recorded another episode around the myth of the angry Black woman. <laughs> and, and it was just diving into it from a, an inquisitive standpoint. Like, where mm-hmm. did it come from? Why is it, you know, why does it exist? Is it true? So I wanted to get your thoughts. The first one around microaggression or your thoughts on what a, a microaggression is. What is the best way to address a microaggression if, if it has occurred? Mm-hmm. And then the second one, I want to, I'd love to get your thoughts around this whole myth of the angry black woman. Is it, it's a myth. It's out there. We've all heard it. Is there any, candidly, any truth to it? I'd just love to get your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So to take your, like your, your second question first, Mm -hmm. the, the thing about, you know, like the angry black woman trope, right? I mean, we've all, we've all heard of it. So, you know, when I think about that, this is what comes to mind. So think about erosion, soil erosion. (laughs) I know it's going to make sense in a little bit. Okay. Imagine a beautiful landscape, right? Around a house. And then, oh, wait, we need gutters. So we, we build gutters, right? And ultimately all that rain drainage is going to go out one point. And let's say we built it in a way where we haven't, you know, built it where as it's going out, it's spread out. So it's kind of even. So it's sort of like just gushing out into this one point. So let's say we built that gutter today, right? If you if you look at that specific point, it's going to look great. Nothing is going to happen. In a week, probably looks about the same. But you come back in six months, you come back in one year, three years, five years, it's going to look very different. At some point, you're going to have a pretty deep, right, mess to fix. Mm-hmm. So now let's advance that thinking and think if someone comes to you and they're poking you, like, oh, hey, you go to like pokes, you know, this part of your shoulder. At first, you might laugh, right? Okay, it's kind of funny, you know? And then they do it the 10th time. They do it the 100th time, 1,000th time. Six months, they're still doing this. I bet you, you're not smiling and asking nicely at that point. You're going to have some feelings and very, very strong feelings towards that. So I, I give all those examples to say, not to say necessarily that it exists, but just to say, well, but... Given all of the obstacles 
to me, I mean, I think that's a pretty logical place for somebody to be if you have to deal with all of these obstacles related to your gender, to your race in an environment that ultimately doesn't necessarily create rooms, right? Or create the space Mm -hmm. uh, for you to have a good experience or to not, you know, experience um, some of those, you know, sometimes overtly, overtly racist experiences, or in some cases, unconscious bias, microaggressions, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, so, so that would be my response, right? It's again, it's not black, it's not either or, Mm -hmm. but even if let's say that's the case, I mean, anybody, if you, you know, there's a, there's a movie I saw this a long time ago, but I should actually probably go revisit that. But it was Eddie Murphy and I forget his name. The premise of the movie was basically, so this actor, I forget his name. He's this white actor. So in the movie, he's like a rich corporate guy with businesses. So doing well. And then Eddie Murphy was this poor person. And then something happened at some point. They trading places, trading places. places. Yeah. 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 And then towards the end, all of those you know, things that Eddie Murphy as the, I, I don't know if he was homeless in that movie, but he was very, right? Like yeah, a yeah. that uh, rich actor started doing all that stuff. So I, I think the takeaway from that is really how your environment and the things that you're faced with ultimately over time, when persistent enough is going to start impacting, you know, how you react to things. And it's not a black woman thing is just, if you put anybody in that situation, that's going to be the outcome, right? Yeah, I love yeah. it. I love your analogies and I love the way you break it down. You know, you take a question and the way you answer it just makes it so simple. <laughs> and I love this. This is awesome. We'll have to have you back because there's so many, so many ways you can take the conversation and oh, dive yeah. even deeper. But I would love to ask you, what is next for you as you champion the causes for diversity, equity, inclusion? What is next for Malobi? would love to hear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so for me personally, like I'm really, 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 really committed to this work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, my focus right now is really just getting our software into the hands of as many companies as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's really what's going to enable them to sort of move from compliance and just shallow, expressions of caring about DEI to to actual results and impact and change that is sustainable long-term. So Mm -hmm. so that's really what I'm focused on. My team and I is really just connecting with organizations and specifically, I mean, um, especially the people that are working to optimize and operationalize DEI within. So that's Mm -hmm. typically like a a DEI professional, chief diversity officer, DEI director, manager, or HR professional, because, you know, a lot of, or in a lot of organizations that function is under HR. So that's really what we're what we're trying to do. So that that's my dream is mm-hmm. getting in, in and then of course, taking it globally as well and making sure because we have the, the same issues that we you know experience here exist other places. It could look yes. very different, mm-hmm. uh, but ultimately it's just how can we all, how can we all get along better? How can we be, you know, good citizens and do our little part on a daily basis to ensure that our neighbors have what they need to thrive and be successful, you know? Um, it sounds really good. So it's easy to think about, but it's it's very difficult to implement and operationalize. So that's where we come in. 
This has been amazing. And I'll make all your details available in the show notes so that people know exactly where to reach you. But just at a high level, what is, what is the best platform to reach you on? And what's your handle, email address, yeah. whatever, all the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. So you would find me probably on LinkedIn the most. That's, okay. yeah, that's that's where I am. So LinkedIn is, is where is that for me. <laughs> okay. okay. But my email address is, and, and I mean, LinkedIn, my name is, it's Malobi, M-A-L-O-B-I. Last name is A-C-H-I-K. Mm-hmm. My email address is Malobi. So my first name at D-E-I directive.com. Okay. We do have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. So find us, follow us there. And I mean, yeah, feel free to reach out to me. I know Gochi is going to provide my contact information, but I'm happy to connect and chat. For sure. This has been amazing, Malobi. Before I let you go, Is there anything I haven't asked you or anything you want the audience to know? I want to give you that opportunity. Love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, you know, like the the one thing I would say is get involved, Mm. right? Because everybody has a place of work or you have like, you know, groups, you know, community, you know, groups that you, you belong to. Just, you know, really get involved and ask yourself, what does you activating your superpowers to solve this problem? What does that look like? And how can you activate it within your sphere of influence? Because I guarantee you, regardless of who you are, regardless of how little you think you know about this issue, how exposed you are, you can have a lot of impact. So uh, just find ways to get involved and do your little bit to move the needle forward. So that would be what I would say. Fantastic. This has been great. Thank you so much, Malobi. And like like I said, we have to have you back again because there's so many, (laughs) so many more questions I'd love to ask you, but thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing. Thanks for coming on the show. Yes. And thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I would love to talk to you. Yeah. (laughs) Me Me too. Thank you for listening to this episode. What was your main takeaway from this episode? What did you like? What, in your opinion, are some ways that we could improve? I want to hear from you. You can reach me at ugochi at fiercemothers.com. To learn more about Fierce Mothers, please visit our website at fiercemothers.com and join our mailing list for our weekly newsletter. The newsletter provides powerful tips and inspiration for life. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Fierce Mothers. Follow me on LinkedIn at Ugochi Onyewu. We are building an engaged community of Fierce Mothers, so please tell your friends about the show. See you next week. Thank you.